Chapter Seven of Hunting Tower by John Buchan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Seven: Sundry Doings in the Murk. From Kirkmichael on, the train stopped at every station, but no passenger seemed to leave or arrive at the little platforms white in the moon. At Dalquarter, the case of provisions was safely transferred to the porter, with instructions to take charge of it till it was sent for. During the next ten minutes, Dixon's mind began to work upon his problem with a certain briskness. It was all nonsense that the law of Scotland could not be summoned to the defence. The jewels had been safely got rid of, and who was to dispute their possession? Not Dobson and his crew, who had no sort of title and were out for naked robbery. The girl had spoken of greater dangers from new enemies—kidnapping, perhaps. Well, that was felony, and the police must be brought in. Probably, if all were known, the three watchers had criminal records, pages long, filed at Scotland Yard. The man to deal with that side of the business was Loudon, the factor, and to him he was bound in the first place. He had made a clear picture in his head of this Loudon, a derelict old country writer, formal, pedantic, lazy, anxious only to get an unprofitable business off his hands with the least possible trouble, never going near the place himself, and, ably supported in his lethargy, by conceited Edinburgh writers to the signet. Six notions of business,' he murmured. "'I wonder that there's a single county family in Scotland knowing the bankruptcy's court.' It was his mission to wake up Mr. James Loudon. Arrived in Ochenlochen, he went first to the Salutation Hotel, a pretentious place sacred to golfers. There he engaged a bedroom for the night, and, having certain scruples, paid for it in advance. He also had some sandwiches prepared which he stowed in his pack, and filled his flask with whisky. "'I'm going home to Glasgow by the first train to-morrow,' he told the landlady, "'and now I've got to see a friend. I'll not be back till late.' He was assured that there would be no difficulty about his admittance at any hour, and directed how to find Mr. Loudon's dwelling. It was an old house fronting direct on the street, with a fanlight above the door, and a neat brass plate bearing the legend, Mr. James Loudon, writer. A lane ran up one side, leading apparently to a garden, for the moonlight showed the dusk of trees. In front was the main street of Ochenlochen, now deserted save for a single roisterer, and opposite stood the ancient town-house, with arches where the country folk came at the spring and autumn hiring fairs. Dixon rang at the antiquated bell, and was presently admitted to a dark hall floored with oilcloth, where a single gas-jet showed that on one side was the business office, and on the other the living-rooms. Mr. Loudon was at supper, he was told, and he sent in his card. Almost at once the door at the end of the left side was flung open, and a large figure appeared flourishing a napkin. "'Come in, sir, come in!' it cried. "'I've just finished a bite of meat. Very glad to see you. Here, Maggie, what do you mean by keeping the gentleman standing in that outer darkness?' The room into which Dixon was ushered was small and bright, with a red paper on the walls, a fire burning, and a big oil lamp in the centre of a table. Clearly Mr. Loughton had no wife, for it was a bachelor's den in every line of it. A cloth was laid on a corner of the table on which stood the remnants of a meal. Mr. Loughton seemed to have been about to make a brew of punch, for a kettle simmered by the fire, and lemons and sugar flanked a pot-bedded whisky decanter of the type that used to be known as a mason's mell. 
The sight of the lawyer was a surprise to Dixon, and dissipated his notions of an aged and lethargic incompetent. Mr. Loudon was a strongly built man who could not be a year over fifty. He had a ruddy face, clean-shaven except for a grizzled moustache. His grizzled hair was thinning round the temples, but his skin was unwrinkled, and his eyes had all the vigour of youth. His tweed suit was well cut, and the buff waistcoat with flaps and pockets and the plain leather watch-guard hinted at the sportsman, as did the half-dozen racing prints on the wall. A pleasant, high-coloured figure he made. His voice had the frank ring due to much use out of doors, and his expression had the singular candour which comes from grey eyes with large pupils and a narrow iris. "'Sit down, Mr. McCunn. Take the armchair by the fire. I've had a wire from Glendonan's spares about you. I was just going to have a glass of toddy. A grand thing for these uncertain April nights. You'll join me? No? Well, you'll smoke, anyway. There's cigars at your elbow. Certainly a pipe, if you like. This is Liberty Hall.' Dixon found some difficulty in the part for which he had cast himself. He had expected to condescend upon an elderly inept, and give him sharp instructions. Instead, he found himself faced with a jovial, virile figure, which certainly did not suggest incompetence. It has been mentioned already that he had always great difficulty in looking any one in the face, and this difficulty was intensified when he found himself confronted with bold and candid eyes. He felt abashed and a little nervous. "'I've come to see you about Hunting Tower House,' he began. "'I know,' so Glendonans informed me. "'Well, I'm very glad to hear it. "'The place has been standing empty far too long, "'and that is worse for a new house than an old house. "'There's not much money to spend on it either, "'unless we can make sure of a good tenant. "'How did you hear about it?' "'I was taking a bit holiday, "'and I spent a night at Del Quarta with an old auntie of mine. "'You must understand, I've just retired from business, "'and I'm thinking of finding a country place.' I used to have the big provision shop in Mern Street. Now the United Supply Stores Limited. You've maybe heard of it. The other bowed and smiled. Who hasn't? The name of Dixon McCann is known far beyond the city of Glasgow. Dixon was not insensible of the flattery, and he continued with more freedom. I took a walk and got a lisk of the house, and I liked the look of it. You see, I want a quiet bit, a good long way from a town, and at the same time a house with all modern conveniences. I suppose Hunting Tower has that. When it was built fifteen years ago it was considered a model. Six bathrooms, its own electric light plant, steam heating, an independent boiler for hot water, the whole bag of tricks. I won't say but what some of these contrivances will want looking to, for the place has been some time empty. But there can be nothing very far wrong, and I can guarantee that the bones of the house are good. "'Well, that's all right,' said Dixon. "'I don't mind spending a little money myself if the place suits me. "'But that, of course, I'm not yet certain, for I've only had a glimpse of the outside. "'I wanted to get into the policies, but a man of the lodge wouldn't let me. "'There's a mighty uncivil lot down there.' "'I'm very sorry to hear that,' said Mr. Loudon, in a tone of concern. "'Aye, and if I take the place, I'll stipulate that you get rid of the lodge-keepers. "'Oh, there won't be the slightest difficulty about that, for they're the only weekly tenants.' "'But I'm vexed to hear they were uncivil. "'I was glad to get any tenant that offered, "'and they were well recommended to me.' "'They're foreigners.' Uh, "'One of them is a Belgium refugee "'that Lady Morwood took an interest in. "'But the other, Spittle, they call him, "'I thought he was Scotch.' "'He's not that, and I don't like the innkeeper either. "'I would want him shifted.' "'Mr. Loudon laughed. "'I dare say Dobson is a rough diamond. 
"'There's worst folk in the world, all the same, but I don't think he will want to stay. "'He only went there to pass the time till he heard from his brother in Vancouver. "'He's a roving spirit, and will be off overseas again.' "'That's all right,' said Dixon, who was beginning to have horrid suspicions "'that he might be on a wild goose chase after all. "'Well, the next thing for me to do is to see over the house.' "'Certainly. I'd like to go with you myself. "'What day would suit you? Uh, let me see, this is Friday.' "'What about this day week?' "'I was thinking of to-morrow. "'Since I'm down in these parts, I may as well get the job done.' Mr. Loudon looked puzzled. "'I quite see that, but I don't think it's possible. "'You see, I have to consult the owners and get their consent to a lease. "'Of course, they have the general purpose of letting, but, well, they're queer folk, the Kennedys.' And his face wore the half-embarrassed smile of an honest man preparing to make confidences. When poor Mr. Quentin died, the place went to his two sisters in joint ownership. A very bad arrangement, as you can imagine. It isn't entailed, and I've always been pressing them to sell, but so far they won't hear of it. They both married Englishmen, so it will take a day or two to get in touch with them. One, Mrs. Stukeley, lives in Devonshire. The other, Miss Katie that was, married Sir Francis Morwood, the general, and I hear that she's expected back in London next Monday from the Riviera. I'll wire and write first thing tomorrow morning, but you must give me a day or two. Dixon felt himself waking up. His doubts about his own sanity were dissolving, for, as his mind reasoned, the factor was prepared to do anything he asked, but only after a week had gone. What he was concerned with was the next few days. All the same, I would like to have a look at the place tomorrow, even if nothing comes of it. Mr. Loudon looked seriously perplexed. "'You will think me absurdly fussy, Mr. McCombe, but I must really beg of you to give up the idea. The Kennedys, as I have said, are, well, not exactly like other people, and I have the strictest orders not to let anyone visit the house without their express leave. It sounds a ridiculous rule, but I assure you it's as much as my job is worth to disregard it.' "'Do you mean to say not a soul is allowed inside the house?' "'Not a soul.' "'Well, Mr. Loudon, I'm going to tell you a queer thing which I think you ought to know. "'When I was taking a walk the other night, your Belgian wouldn't let me into the policies, "'but I went down the glen—what's that they call it? The Garpodine. "'I got round the back, where the old ruin stands, and I had a good look at the house. "'I tell you, there was somebody in it.' "'It would be Spittle who acts as caretaker.' "'It was not. It was a woman. I saw her on the veranda.' The candid grey eyes were looking straight at Dixon, who managed to bring his own shy orbs to meet them. He thought that he detected a shade of hesitation. Then Mr. Loudon got up from his chair and stood on the hearthrug, looking down at his visitor. He laughed with some embarrassment, but ever so pleasantly. "'I really don't know what you will think of me, Mr. McCunn. Here are you, coming to do us all a kindness, and lease that infernal white elephant.' and here have I been steadily hoaxing you for the last five minutes. I humbly ask your pardon. Set it down to the loyalty of an old family lawyer. Now, I am going to tell you the truth, and take you into our confidence, for I know we are safe with you. The Kennedys are, always have been, just a wee bit queer. Old inbred stock, you know. They will produce somebody like poor Mr. Quentin, who was as sane as you or me, but as a rule in every generation there is one member of the family, or more, who is just a little bit—and he tapped his forehead—and nothing violent, you understand, but just not quite wise and world-like, as the old folks say. 
Well, there's a certain old lady, an aunt of Mr. Quentin and his sisters, who has always been about tempered to the shilling. Usually she lives at Bournemouth, but one of her crazies has a passion for hunting tower, and the Kennedys have always humoured her and had her to stay every spring. When the house was shut up, that became impossible, but this year she took such a craving to come back that Lady Morwood asked me to arrange it. It had to be kept very quiet, but the poor old thing is perfectly harmless, and just sits and knits with her maid and looks out of the seaward windows. Now you see why I can't take you there to-morrow. I have to get rid of the old lady, who in any case was travelling south early next week. Do you understand?' "'Perfectly,' said Dixon, with some fervour. He had learned exactly what he wanted. The factor was telling him lies. Now he knew where to place Mr. Loudon. He always looked back upon what followed as a very creditable piece of play-acting for a man who had small experience in that line. "'Is the old lady a wee, wizened body with a black cap and something like a white cashmere shawl round her shoulders?' "'You describe her exactly,' Mr. Loudon replied eagerly. "'Ah, that would explain the foreigners. Of course, we, we couldn't have natives who would make the thing the clash of the countryside.' "'Of course not.' But it must be a difficult job to keep a business like that quiet. And wandering policemen might start inquiries. And supposing the lady became violent? Oh, there's no fear of that. Besides, I have a position in this county, deputy fiscal and so forth, and a friend of the chief constable. I think I may be trusted to do a little private explaining of the need arose. I see, said Dixon. He saw, indeed, a great deal which would give him food for furious thought. "'Well, I must just possess my soul in patience. "'Here's my Glasgow address, and I look to you to send me a telegram whenever you're ready for me. "'I'm at the salutation to-night, and go home to-morrow with the first train. Oh, "'Wait a minute,' and he pulled out his watch. "'There's a train stopped at Ochenlochen at ten-seventeen. I think I'll catch that. "'Well, Mr. Loudon, I'm very much obliged to you, "'and I'm glad to think that it'll no be long till we renew our acquaintance.' "'The factor accompanied him to the door.' diffusing geniality. "'Very pleasant indeed to have met you. A pleasant journey and a quick return.' The street was still empty. Into a corner of the arches opposite the moon was shining, and Dixon retired thither to consult his map of the neighbourhood. He found what he wanted, and, as he lifted his eyes, caught a sight of a man coming down the causeway. Promptly he retired into the shadow and watched the newcomer. There could be no mistake about the figure. The bulk the walk, the carriage of the head marked it, for Dobson. The innkeeper went slowly past the factor's house, then halted and retraced his steps, then, making sure that the street was empty, turned into the side lane which led to the garden. This was what sailors call a cross-bearing, and strengthened Dixon's conviction. He delayed no longer, but hurried down the side street by which the north road leaves the town. He had crossed the bridge of Lochan and was climbing the steep ascent which led to the heathy plateau separating that stream from the garple, before he had got his mind quite clear on the case. First, Loudon was in the plot, whatever it was, responsible for the details of the girl's imprisonment, but not the main author. That must be the unknown who was still to come, from whom Spidel took his orders. Dobson was probably Loudon's special henchman, working directly under him. Secondly, the immediate object had been the jewels, and they were happily safe in the vaults of the incorruptible Mackintosh. 
but third, and this only on Saskia's evidence, the worst danger to her began with the arrival of the unknown. What could that be? Probably kidnapping. He was prepared to believe anything of people like Bolsheviks. And, fourth, this danger was due within the next day or two. Loudon had been quite willing to let him into the house to sack all the watchers within a week from that date. The natural and right thing was to summon the aid of the law. But, fifth, that would be a slow business with Loudon able to put spokes in the wheels and befog the authorities, and the mischief would be done before a single policeman showed his face in Delquarta. Therefore, sixth, he and Heritage must hold the fort in the meantime, and he would send a wire to his lawyer, Mr. Corr, to get to work with the constabulary. Seventh, he himself was probably free from suspicion in both Loudon's and Dobson's minds as a harmless fool. But that freedom would not survive his reappearance in Dalquarter. He could say, to be sure, that he had come back to see his auntie, but that would not satisfy the watchers, since, so far as they knew, he was the only man outside the gang who was aware that people were dwelling in the house. They would not tolerate his presence in the neighbourhood. He formulated his conclusions as if it were an ordinary business deal, and, rather to his surprise, was not conscious of any fear. As he pulled together the belt of his waterproof, he felt the reassuring bulges in his pockets which were his pistol and cartridges. He reflected that it must be very difficult to miss with a pistol if you fired it at, say, three yards, and, if there was to be shooting, that would be his range. Mr. McCann had stumbled on the precious truth that the best way to be rid of quaking knees is to keep a busy mind. He crossed the ridge of the plateau and looked down on the garpled glen. There were the lights of Dalquata, or rather a single light, for the inhabitants went early to bed. His intention was to seek quarters with Mrs. Moran, when his eye caught a gleam in a hollow of the moor a little to the east. He knew it for the camp fire around which Dougal's warriors bivouacked. The notion came to him to go there instead and hear the news of the day before entering the cottage. So he crossed the bridge, skirted a plantation of firs, and scrambled through the broom and heather in what he took to be the right direction. The moon had gone down, and the quest was not easy. Dixon had come to the conclusion that he was on the wrong road, when he was summoned by a voice which seemed to arise out of the ground. "'Who goes there?' "'What's that you say?' "'Who goes there?' The point of a pole was hurled firmly against his chest. "'I'm Mr. McCann, a friend of Dougal's.' "'Stand, friend!' The shadow before him whistled, and another shadow appeared. "'Report to the chief that there's a man here named McCann seeking for him.' Presently the messenger returned, with Dougal and a sheep lantern, which he flashed in Dixon's face. "'Oh, it's you,' said the leader, who had his jaw bound up as if he had the toothache. "'What are you doing back here?' "'To tell the truth, Dougal,' was the answer, "'I couldn't stay away. "'I was fair miserable when I thought of Mr. Heritage "'and you laddies left to yourselves. "'My conscience simply wouldn't let me stop at home. "'So here I am.' "'Dougal grunted, but clearly he approved, "'for from that moment he treated Dixon with a new respect. "'Formerly, when he had referred to him at all, "'it had been as Old McCunn. "'Now it was Mr. McCunn. "'He was given rank as a worthy civilian ally.' The bivouac was a cheerful place in the wet night, 
a great fire of pine roots and old paling posts hissed in the fine rain, and around it crouched several urchins busy making oatmeal cakes in the embers. On one side a respectable lean-to had been constructed by nailing a plank to two fir-trees, running sloping poles thence to the ground, and thatching the hole with spruce branches and heather. On the other side two small dilapidated home-made tents were pitched. Dougal motioned his companion into the lean-to, where they had some privacy from the rest of the band. "'Well, what's your news?' Dixon asked. He noticed that the chieftain seemed to have been comprehensively in the walls, for, apart from the bandage on his jaw, he had numerous small cuts on his brow, and a great rent in one of his shirt-sleeves. Also he appeared to be going lame, and when he spoke a new gap was revealed in his large teeth. "'Things,' said Dougal solemnly, "'has come to a bonny crippus. This very night we've been in a battle.' He spat fiercely, and the light of war burned in his eyes. "'It was the tinklers from the Garpardine. They yoke it on us about seven o'clock, just at the darkening. First they tried to bounce us. We weren't wanted here, they said, so we'd better clear. I'll tell them that it was them that wasn't wanted. Away to Finnick, says I. Do you think we'd take our orders from dirty near-de-wheels like you? By God, says they, we'll cut your lights out. And then the battle started. What happened? Dixon asked excitedly. There were four muckle men against six laddies, and they thought they had an easy job. Little they ken the Gorbals diehards. I'd been expecting something of the kind, and had made my plans. They first tried to pull down our tents and burn them. I let them get within five yards, reserving my fire. The first volley, stones from our hands and our catties, halted them, and before they could recover, three of us had got hold of burning sticks for the fire, and were lamming into them. We kindled their clays, and they fell back, swearing and stamping to get the fire out. Then I gave the word, and we were on them with our poles, using the points according to instructions. My orders was to keep a good distance, for if they had a grip at one of us, he'd have been done for. They were roaring mad by now, and Tway had out their knives, but they couldn't do muckle, for it was getting dark, and they didn't ken the ground like us, and were a tripping and tumbling. But they pressed us hard, and one of them landed me an awful clipe on the jaw. They were still aiming at our tents, and I saw that if they got near the fires again, it would be the end of us. So I blew my whistle for Thomas Yarney, who was in command of the other half of us, with instructions to fall upon their rear. That brought Thomas up, and the Tinklers had to face round about and fight a battle on two fronts. We charged them, and they broke. And the last scene of them, they were cooling their burns in the garpel. "'Well done, man. Had you many casualties?' "'Well, all are we being battered, but nothing to hurt. "'I'm the worst, for one of them had a grip of me for about three seconds, "'and, gosh, he was fierce. "'They're beaten off for the night, anyway.' "'Aye, for the night. But they'll come back, never fear. "'That's why I said that things had come to a cripus. "'What's the news from the house?' "'A quiet day, and no word of Lena Dobson.' "'Dixon nodded. "'They were hunting me.' Mr. Heritage has gone to bide in the hoose. They were watching the Garpardines, so I took him round by the laverfoot and up the rocks. He's a grand climber, yon. We found a road up the rocks and got in by the verandy. Did you ken that the lassie had a pistol? Well, she has, and it seems that Mr. Heritage is a good shot with a pistol, so there's some hope thereaways. Are the jewels safe? Safe in the bank, but the jewels were not the main thing. Dougal nodded. 
"'So I was thinking. "'The lassie wasn't muckle the easier for getting rid of them. "'I didn't just quite understand what she said to Mr. Heritage, "'for they a wandering into foreign languages. "'But it seems she's terribly feared of somebody that may turn up at any moment. "'What's the reason I can't say? "'She's maybe got a secret, or maybe it's just that she's o'er bonny.' "'That's the trouble,' said Dixon, "'and proceeded to recount his interview with the factor "'to which Dougal gave close attention. "'Now the way I read the thing is this. "'There's a plot to kidnap that lady for some infernal purpose, "'and it depends on the arrival of some person or persons, "'and it's due to happen in the next day or two. "'If we try to work it through the police alone, they'll beat us, "'for Loudon will manage to hang the business up till it's too late. "'So we must take up the job ourselves.' "'We must stand a siege, Mr. Heritage and me and you laddies, "'and for that purpose we better all keep together. "'It won't be extra easy to carry her off from all of us, "'and if they do manage it, we'll stick to their heels. "'Man, Dougal, isn't it a queer thing "'that whilst law-abiding folk have to make their own laws? "'So my plan is that the lot of us get into the house "'and form a garrison. "'If you don't, the ticklings will come back "'and you'll no beat them in the daylight.' "'I doubt no,' said Dougal. "'But what about our meat?' "'We must lay in provisions. "'We'll get what we can from Mrs. Moran, "'and I've left a big box of fancy things at Delquarter Station. "'Can you laddies manage to get it down here?' "'Dougal reflected. "'I we can harm Mrs. Semple's pony, "'the same that fetched our kit.' "'Well, that's your job to-morrow. "'See, I'll write you a line to the station-master. "'And would you undertake to get it some way into the house?' "'There's just the one road open by the rocks. "'It'll have to be done. "'It can be done.' "'And I've another job. "'I'm writing this telegram to a friend in Glasgow "'who will put a spoke in Mr. Loudon's wheel. "'I want one of you to go to Kirkmichael "'to send it from the telegraph office there.' "'Dougal placed the wire to Mr. Corr in his bosom. "'What about yourself? "'We want somebody outside to keep his eyes open. "'It's bad strategy to cut off your communications.' Dixon thought for a moment. "'I believe you're right. I believe the best plan for me is to go back to Mrs. Morrin's as soon as the old body's like to be awake. You can always get at me there, for it's easy to slip into her back kitchen without anybody in the village seeing you. Yes, I'll do that, and you'll come and report developments to me. And now I'm for a bite and a pipe. It's hungry work travelling the country in the small hours.' "'I'm going to introduce you to the rest of us,' said Dougal. "'Here, men,' he called and four figures rose from the side of the fire. As Dixon munched a sandwich, he passed in review the whole company of the Gorbals diehards, for the pickets were also brought in, two others taking their places. There was Thomas Yowney, the chief of staff, with a wrist wound up in the handkerchief which he had borrowed from his neck. There was a burly lad who wore trousers much too large for him, and who was known as Pierre Persson, a contraction presumably for Peter Patterson. After him, came a lean, tall boy who answered to the name of Napoleon. There was a midget of a child, desperately sooty in the face either from battle or from fire-tending, who was presented as Wee Jakey. Last came the picket who had held his pole at Dixon's chest, a sandy-haired warrior with a snub nose and the mouth and jaw of a pug-dog. He was Old Bill, or in Dougal's parlance, Old Bull. The chieftain viewed his scarred following with a grim content. "'That's a tough lot for ye, Mr. Buchan. "'Used to the days with sleeping in quarries and dunnies and dodging the police. "'Ye'll no beat the Gorbals diehards.' 
"'You're right, Dougal,' said Dixon. "'There's just the six of you. "'If there were a dozen, I think this country would be needing some new kind of a government.'" End of chapter 7